This is going to be interesting today, and uh, it's going to be interesting together for the next five weeks. Um, I'll be straight up with you. I'm nervous about it. And uh, let me just kind of couch this a little bit before we jump in. We, uh, we've been talking a lot about these discipleship groups that we've been doing here since the fall, and, and basically that's just um, a term that we use for, for people, maybe six to 12 people that are gathering in, in living rooms and in family rooms and basements, maybe once a week, maybe once every other week, to just really kind of wrestle with the things of God together. You know, they're getting together to study the Bible or to read, read books about, about facets of, of, of God and spirituality and seeking Him and His, His will for our life, and they're, they're praying together. And, and see, this is inevitable. Whenever you start wrestling with God in a sincere and concerted and decided kind of way. It starts churning things up because you realize that God has a lot to say. And he's got a lot to say to some of the hard and confusing and challenging and just emotionally charged topics and issues of today. And, and you realize that, that sometimes when you come face to face with what God says, it, it, it's like kind of cathartic, right? And it just... Oh, and it just kind of answers it. But other times, don't you come face to face with what God says? And, and it just, on the surface, it feels just difficult and, and kind of raw. And, 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 and you find yourself railing against it, going, how, how can the God that I've come to know be a God who says something like this? And, and then, quite honestly, there's other times, I think, you just look at some of the things God says and you're like, I'm just confused. And, and I don't really know how to make heads or tails of this, and I understand the words on the page, but, but when it comes to translating it to these specific situations, I'm, I'm at a loss. And, and since the fall, these groups have been, have been talking and wrestling and, and churning, and they've been realizing very quickly, I mean, fundamentally, Jesus can be difficult. Jesus can just be flat-out difficult in coming to terms with what he says and understanding how to live it, and, and making sense in, in, in a current context. And to hear the conversations that have been coming out of these groups, it's just like, I want to be there, you know? You ever have that moment where, where you hear what people are experiencing together, and it's like, I want to taste that because you see what they're talking about and, and the way they're really digging in, not just at this placid kind of stale, simple level, but really wrestling through topics like, like divorce and, and, and topics like forgiveness and, and topics like reconciliation and, and, and topics like hell. You know, how, how do you deal with that one and, 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 and everything else in between? And what we're going to be doing these next several weeks together is just looking at some of these difficult things we come across in the Bible, difficult things of Jesus, and try to really wrestle together with what does God have to say to these things like divorce and remarriage, to homosexuality, to creation, to hell, to, to forgiveness, and, and where does fellowship of faith maybe stand on these Things. But, you know, so much more importantly than that, how does it inform our thinking? Is we, as a people who are really trying to seek God's will, how do we take these things and interact with these topics and, and, and interact with these 
people, or how if we're people that are struggling with this, come to approach how God understands us and interact with him and live in that stream of what he's calling us to. Does that make sense? Which means that every week for the next five weeks, we're going to be dealing with topics that are just flat out emotionally charged. That a lot of us, I think, are possibly polarized on, whether we know it or not. Topics that I think each of us have had to really deal with and wrestle with in personal and intimate ways, not just theoretical ways, which makes it so much harder because there's always a face that stands behind the subject. And I hope that in this time together, we can uh, just really come face to face with, with the living God and how he speaks to the very real things that very real people have to deal with. And the one that we're going to hit today is the topic of homosexuality and what the Bible has to say on it and how to start sifting through what's become such a a, a charged topic today. I mean, if we watch the news, we know that Illinois just approved civil unions that'll come into effect in June. We know on the national scene um, that this has been happening as well. And more and more, I think, in in schools and workplaces, we've... uh, We've seen um, greater awareness, greater um, solidarity, greater um, uh, coming to the fore of people who are homosexual or struggling with homosexuality. We see it in the media. And, and I just want to ask a question here today. How many of you in this room personally know someone, friend, family member, a coworker, someone you go to school with who, who struggles with homosexuality? Yeah, look at that. Look at that around the room. And see, what does that show us? This is real stuff. This isn't just theory. These are real people. Maybe you, if you struggle with it in this room, are a real person. And this issue is alive and burning. And as we approach this today, you can notice that there isn't a soapbox in the middle of this room. The purpose of this and and all these talks is not to get on a soapbox. I'm just hoping that, you know, we could come together and is it possible for believers in Christ to interact and discuss and approach these topics civilly and and, and, and with a spirit of openness and, and vulnerability and with love? That's really what I want to do here today as we jump into this. The first person that I met who struggled with homosexuality, at least in a way that I knew he struggled and, and I knew what it was about. It was, it was a really good friend of mine in high school. Now, now, when I first met him, I didn't know that this was his, his baggage at all. I didn't know that this was something he was hiding, and I didn't know that this was something he was, uh, quite honestly, terrified of. And, and I got to meet him through this thing I was doing through the police station at the time, and, and no, it wasn't parole. Um, and... <laughs> And, and, you know, and just over time, we got to be good friends. And, and you know how when you have a relationship with someone, there's kind of like that surface casual level friendship where you're happy to see each other, maybe you go see a movie together, you grab something to eat, but you just talk about everyday life stuff. But then there comes that point where something happens in, in, in the connection where 
because of what one person is dealing with, something starts to crack. And, and I mean, something starts to show in, in the mask or, or in the wall that's been built up. And, and I remember this with this, this friend of mine. And he just, you could tell, the guy was just like breaking inside. And, and he would literally start crying for, for no reason whatsoever. And, and you know, and the first time you're sitting there with your high school buddy and he starts crying in the car, it's like, Oh my God, you know, but then you start talking and it's like, what is going on? And see, what I came to find out from this friend of mine was that um, he was struggling because he thought he was gay. See, this was his story. He, uh, he was um, raped by his uncle when he was 14 years old. And I'll spare you the details of what his uncle did to him. And his uncle was arrested and he was forced to get on the stand and testify about something that he was embarrassed of and felt shame about. And he was forced to answer questions like, when he did this to you, did it feel good? When your uncle did this to you, were you aroused? He was. And he walked away with this emotional shift and this psychological shift that happened in him from that, that act that was thrust upon him. And uh, he knew what he felt. And he was convinced he was gay. And, and, you know, he would talk about how he couldn't get it out of his mind. That it would replay over and over and over again. And with the replaying of it, why, why did I not fight harder? Why did I let him manipulate me? Why didn't I... Why, why, did, I, why did I find that it stimulated me? And it tortured him. And it tortured him for a few reasons. The one is obvious, right? Anyone who has to endure rape, especially as a child. But it, but it tortured him for another reason as well. See, see my buddy was, was, was very conservative Catholic. Hyper-conservative, Latin only. Um, fundamentalist Catholic, you might even want to say. And he knew where the church stood. If you're gay, you go to hell. And he was convinced that he could not be forgiven for what he felt. He was convinced that he was cast out of the grace of Christ. He was convinced that who he was at the very core was corrupt and evil and wrong. And he agreed with it. Because he believed in God so much and so deeply. And here the very ally he was supposed to have in this, this time of unspeakable tragedy became his greatest enemy. And he spent his days wandering, looking for any bit of hope, but knowing in his mind that there was only despair. And it was destroying him. I had a very, uh, another very good friend of mine later on in life who was um, also struggling with homosexuality. It was a different story with him. Um, the way our relationship started out was he was a senior and I was a freshman. I had a very bad roommate situation first semester, freshman year. Um, I liked the guy personally, but bad. Have you ever had to live with someone where everything was their way, and if it wasn't their way, it's just like you might as well roll over and die? You know? And anything you would do would be undone as soon as you left the room. And like your food, you would buy food, but it would be like wiped out and gone. Have you ever um, woken up? college students in the middle of the night to your bed cavitating like this and you look down at the bottom bunk 
and see two people instead of one? Okay, this was my freshman year experience. And I happened to be rushing a frat and uh, just got talking to this guy. And, you know, we just, man, we hit it off. You know, all of his friends had kind of graduated. He was a 50-year senior, actually. And, you know, and I was kind of sitting here going, geez, the one guy I've got a connection with this first week of class is like, my God, you know what I mean? And we just started talking. And, you know, and he had a single room. And so for really the first semester to first year of my freshman year, he was my unofficial roommate. Now, my mail was still sent to 303 Dow Hall. But where did I sleep at night? Where did I keep half my stuff? Where would my mom call me when she knew she wanted to find me, right? It was over there. It was interesting, this buddy of mine, he was a, he was a strong evangelical Christian. He, in fact, is the one responsible for introducing me to what I would call the evangelical subculture. Do you know what I mean by the term, the evangelical subculture? Uh, stuff like this. See, before my freshman year, I never heard of Michael W. Smith. I didn't know who the guy was, and Christian contemporary was not on my grid. And I go into his room, and he's listening to this. I'm like, oh, what is this? And he suddenly starts opening worlds to me of, of bands with strange names like Jar of Clay, and, 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 and people with names like uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman, and, and things like this. And it's like, what is this strange world? I, I realized there were Bibles printed with funky covers, not just in pew black. I realized that there were these rallies that, that Christians would just have around the nation with people with names like Ron Lucci. You see my brother over here? He's getting hives right now as I speak. Watch him through this because of his love for this subculture and, and watch him scratch his neck. <laughs> Just too classic, man. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to point you out, but it was awesome. <laughs> you know, it, this was in the era when, when some, some rogue rebels would put Jesus fish on their car because this was a secret symbol before it got... See, we just take it for granted today, right? But back in the big 90s, the mid-90s, this was just coming to the fore. And I mean, this guy, he went to church like eight times a week. Two Sunday services and night services, the candlelight night service and the folk service because they didn't even have contemporary. Then it was folk service. You'd sit on pillows and sing songs from the 70s, you know? And we, we do kumbaya together. And, uh, you, you know, and this guy had a fervor for Jesus, Unlike I had really seen in high school, in my youth group, with my friends, shoot, even with the staff, he wanted them. He was hungry for them. He knew the Bible, you know, and, and, and yet it came out more and more in our friendship that he was struggling with something. And at first it started coming out in kind of innocuous ways that weren't enough to make you go, hmm, but kind of made you go, hmm. And then it kind of started coming out a little bit more and a little bit more. Then he started talking about how, you know, in, in the new era of the 386 and fast download speeds, his struggle with internet pornography. And then more and more is some friends, quote-unquote, of his at school were talking about blackmailing him. The kind of pornography he was struggling with had to come out even more on top of that. And he started opening up a little bit about his past and the feelings he had and the things he had to struggle with. And I tell you, at first, I wasn't equipped to deal with it. It, it kind of rocked my world. Um, scared me to death, to be honest, because here I was living there. 
started coming out a little bit more after that. Things he was currently struggling with in more than just an internet kind of way. And he came to realize quickly that we were friends that went beyond just the label friends, you know? We were, we were kind of, it grew to something deeper. And, and which meant I was like the only person he could trust, including his parents. And, and he would start telling me things. And it's like, I don't want to hear this because I don't know how to handle it. But I was forced to. And then he started telling me about things he was feeling about me. And then it starts going to a whole nother level, right? And I remember one time in talking to him, him kind of sharing with me that this, uh, he didn't choose this. You know, it wasn't like my other friend where something happened to him in a traumatic way and it kind of shifted him emotionally. It's just kind of like, you know, I, 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 it's like, I don't know, I just kind of always felt this way and I don't know why. And here was the interesting thing. It was a source of struggle and wrestle for him. And, and this is in the way that he had to wrestle because at one hand, he didn't want it. He didn't want to feel this way. And he didn't want to have these kinds of feelings and attractions and desires. And yet at a very different level, he got so sick of feeling bad about who he was that he just wanted to embrace it. He's like, this is who I am. This is how I'm wired. I'm going to stop torturing myself about this. And watching firsthand a close friend wrestle through this. And wrestle trying to deny it trying to forsake it, trying to seek the power of God to deliver him from it, and not ever seeing it really come, not, not in the lasting way where the struggle ended. You know, and I looked at both of those friends of mine, and one came by environment, one came arguably more by hardwiring, if you will, but both of them sharing this common struggle together, this tortured about it. Tortured about what they felt, about what they thought, tortured by the fear of what other people might think of them. Tortured by the fact that, what if it got out? What's going to happen to me? Um, how are people going to treat me? How do I live this way? Those of you who have raised your hands, 10 bucks says a lot of you have probably seen this struggle in their lives. Maybe you've had it in your own. And uh, both of them wishing they could give it up. This was what was fascinating to both of them for me. Both of them said, I wish I didn't feel like this, but I do. Now, this isn't true for all people. I'm not trying to claim that this way. Everyone who struggles with this deals with it, but it was for them. And most of all, realizing that the church was not a place that they could find help or answers to their deepest, darkest fears and sins of all. You know, it's fascinating. I asked a question earlier, how many of you knew someone who was gay? I'm going to ask you to raise your hand on this one. How many of you here at times deal with what you would consider a short temper? Okay, now look around. Okay, go ahead and put your hands down. Now, I'm not asking you to answer this, okay? But let me pose the question. What if I asked you the question this morning, how many of you struggle with homosexual thoughts and feelings? 
Is one sin worse than the other? No. But there's something so hypercharged about this one, isn't there? So embarrassing, so fear-laden, so emotionally driven that do you see the struggle that my two friends had? You know, what I'd like to do is dig in to how I believe the Bible approaches this thing that we call homosexuality. Now, at one fundamental level, the Bible will say that it's a sin. That, that immaterial of whether it happened like my one friend in high school where it came upon him because of something or my other friend who always just kind of felt a certain way. If you look at the passages of Scripture, they would say this thing that we call homosexuality is a sin. Or maybe better put, it's a distortion of what God intended for you. Now, you say words like that, that this is a distortion. You're a distortion. People balk at that. You might balk at that, right? But if you're balking at that, I want to challenge you on something this morning. I want to challenge you on what your conception of sin actually is. Because, see, I think for a lot of us, sin is something, is equated to something that we do. But that's not how the Bible talks about sin. The way that the Bible talks about sin is it says it is something that you are. It is something inside of you, and it reveals, when you do something, all it's doing is revealing a character within you. And so that when we say we're sinners, what we're saying is that we are fundamentally in some way distorted from what God intended us to be. Guess what, guys? All of you in this room are a distortion. Every single one of you are a distortion of what God intended you to be. And that distortion is going to manifest itself in different ways in each of us. For some of us, it's going to manifest itself in, in, in a selfish, me-driven drive that makes us quick to anger when snuff doesn't go our way. You know what? If you raised your hand, you're not right. There is something in you that's not right. And likewise, the Bible would say that your sexuality can be distorted as well. Something that is not right from the way God intended it to be. Homosexuality, the Bible says, is one, but there's others along hetero lines as well. And so fundamentally, when we talk about homosexuality being a sin, at one level we're talking about an act, but at another level we're talking about something deeper. We're talking about a, an inclination of the heart that is contrary to that which God intended for his creation to be. Now, I can show you the passages on this in the Bible. I don't want to take the time in, in belaboring them today, so I will simply just mention two for you to look at on your own. The first is Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, and I'm doing this intentionally, not just Old Testament, it's New Testament as well. You could read Romans chapter 1 through 18 about how, God, how Paul describes how God hands people over to their sinful desires. And within this, we see homosexuality as one of the things in context. I will actually show you one other slide as well. This comes from 1 Corinthians. And this one's a charged one, and it's why I think we need to look. 
Paul writes, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the, the, the kingdom of God. Ouch. Right? Now, the thing is, I've seen a lot of people get on a, a soapbox with this passage. And I've seen people pick it, and I've seen people do some pretty ugly things where they will go, gays will burn in hell. It says it right here in 1 Corinthians 6. The question I want to ask you today is do you fit the description of anything else mentioned in this list? How many of you are sexually immoral? How many of you have it in your past? How many of you can list more than one person that you've slept with that isn't your spouse? How many struggle with pornography? My point is not to shame you in that. My point is to show you how God approaches the playing field of sin. How many of you have ever talked bad about someone else in your life? Cut them down in a way that wasn't appropriate. Do you know what the Bible calls that? Slander. And there it is. So while the Bible will say that homosexuality is a distortion of that which God intended, what it does not say is that those of you who are struggling with this and those of you who know someone who is struggling with it, that they are somehow in a greater place of judgment by God than any other sinner. Or maybe another way to put it is this. All of us are in just as great a place of judgment as they are. Now, for a minute, I want to talk to those of you personally in this room who are struggling with homosexuality. Maybe you're not practicing. Maybe you are. Maybe it's just tortured or afraid of thoughts that go through your mind, feelings of attraction that you get, experimentation or who knows what's in between. I want to say a few things to you today. Number one, and, and hear this, God loves you. Hear this, God loves you. Hear this, God loves you. If my buddy in high school had just had someone who was a devout believer who could look him in the eye and say, wait a minute, dude, you are struggling with in the mire, but God loves you. Oh my gosh. And those of you who have children, family members, friends, don't you doubt for one second, no matter how deeply entrenched they are, God loves them too. I think of this passage where Paul writes, you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, but God made you alive with Christ. He forgave you all your sins. He forgave us all our sins. Do you think all might, just might, include homosexuality? You need to know that the grace of God is big enough for you and for your son and your daughter and your sister and your friend. Here's the second thing I want you to know. Your homosexuality, it doesn't define you. I want all of you to hear this. Your sexuality does not 
have to define you. I think of what Paul said, do not be deceived because these people will not inherit the kingdom of God, right? Look at the verse print, verse 11. You see it there? Look at what it says right after. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Do you know what that means? That homosexuality? That's not you anymore. That's who you were. Likewise, those of you who are drunkards and slanderers and swindlers and everything else on that list, that is not who you are anymore. That is who you were. And I know you're sitting there and you're going, no, it is who I am because I still struggle with it. And you know what God says? I know, but that is who you were. In other words, that does not have to be you. And you may struggle with it to your dying day, but you know what Jesus says? I know, but you were washed. You were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus, which means any time any sin comes haunting you again, saying, I've got you. Do you know what you say? I know, but that's who I was because I have been washed, I have been sanctified, and I have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. Can you get a sin in your mind right now, one that taunts you and haunts you and challenges you and tortures you to your core? Do you have it? Those of you who are dealing with sexual issues and sexual sins, and particularly this thing called homosexuality, whether a current struggle or a past, can you get the guilt, the haunting, and the torture and the struggle in your mind right now? All of you, I want you to hear that is who you were. It defines you no longer. Would you read that with me, but put I in the place of you? But I was washed, all of you. But I was washed. I was sanctified. I was justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's true. Own it. And any time the devil comes back to taunt you with it, you say that to his face. I am no longer defined by the distortions and the sins that plague me. To those of you who are struggling, you know, I, I want you to know that I could only begin to fathom what you deal with. Because you struggle with something that is such a driving force of your life. Isn't sexuality such a driving force and defining part of who we are? And by you having to struggle with that, let me just say you are a warrior because you have got to battle on fronts that many of us cannot even begin to dream. And I want you to know, you might have to struggle with this your whole life long. I know there's some of you sitting in this room that have prayed that it would go away like my buddy did in college. Pray that the feelings would be taken away. Pray for control. Pray for alleviation. And it might come from time, but then it comes haunting back. The hard and bitter reality is you might have to struggle with this your whole life long. Paul gets very personal in one of his letters. And he writes about a struggle he had. He calls it a thorn in the flesh. You understand what that means? You ever get pricked by a thorn? You ever get one stuck in you? 
it really just like kind of occupies your mind all the, it's like when you get that sliver, right, or a piece of like popcorn under your tooth, it's like all you can do is think about this. Those of you who have deep, struggled deeply with sins, especially sins of this kind, you, you know what I mean. Paul talks about how he prayed to God that God would take it away. Look at how God answered him. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. See, God didn't come down to Paul and take away the fight. He didn't make the struggle go away. Not in this case. God instead said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. You want it to be taken away, but know that in the midst of it, my grace is going to be sufficient for what you need, for what you want. And my power to overcome is going to shine out in your struggle and in your weakness. You know, in the world of psychology, it's debated whether someone who is homosexual can become heterosexual or not, whether the feelings and the inclinations will change. Personally, I believe that if it's truly sin, God can give victory over sin, and that God is a God who can restore, and God is a God who can heal in any multiple number of ways. But the reality is sometimes God doesn't this side of eternity. And you may have to struggle, and when you struggle, no matter how often you have to, I want you to burn this phrase in your mind. Say it with me, all of you, today. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Make it your war cry. Stare it in the face when it seeks to tear you down and go, but my God's grace is sufficient for me, and his power is made perfect in my weakness, and tap into that power of God to endure when you've got nothing left to give and no energy left to resist. And with that, know that when it comes, the struggles, the temptations, the desire to just screw it, give in, yeah, I don't, you know, you don't have to. Paul, in fact, says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. So own your sin, but know that God gives you the power to overcome. Admit what you're dealing with and struggling with. I'm not saying to everyone because you've got to be careful who you trust, but internally between you and God, admit it, own it, confess it, and boast before the Lord that he will give you the power to overcome. Know that when the struggle hits, it says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. All of us are called to crucify that which draws us. You know what that means? When the devil or the world comes and tempts and it clicks deep down with something that wells deep within us, we want it. And the desire itself, there might not even be anything wrong with. But sometimes it's even just the motivation. When it comes, God says, crucify it. Kill it within you. Yeah, take a stand and say, you do not own me. You do not control me. You do not dictate who I am. I can't imagine how unspeakably hard it's going to be. But as a sinner sitting with you here today, I can tell you, 
I'm there with you. Now, to those of you who aren't struggling with this, personally, I mean, maybe it's a friend or a family member. Maybe it's just theoretical here today. Remember, you're no better or worse than that person who's struggling with this. You do not stand any higher or lower in God's sight. You are no more or less valuable to him. Before God, we're one. And Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, and you could probably add every other sin list on there, hetero or homo or anything else, because we're all sinners. Let that inform your attitudes. Let that inform the way that you interact with those in the trench. And know that your job is to love people. Your job is to love sinners. Period. The, the early church had a very interesting way that they dealt with the outcasts and undesirables of life. We're not going to be talking about this topic, but I think it works good by analogy. While abortion wasn't common in the ancient world, the practice of abandoning your infants was. Because an abortion in the ancient world is a risky medical procedure, so you just give birth and leave your child out in the trash heap. It kind of affects the same thing. You get rid of the child you don't want in a horribly cruel way, of course, but the early church had to deal with this. It's funny how they approached it. They would go out to the trash heaps and find these babies and raise them as their own. Because they knew that God judges sin, their job was to love the sinner. And they would take these children in. Love people who are struggling with this because they don't think you do. And they don't think the church does. And they don't think Jesus does either. And in their time of greatest need, they're looking for solace and acceptance and answers and hope from everywhere except the one who is greatest able to give. The Bible will talk about us being salt and light. This is what Jesus says to you. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on the stand, right? In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. This is what amazes me most about Jesus. Jesus had no problem going to anyone and confronting them and what they were dealing with, what they were struggling with, and the sins that they had in their life. It didn't matter who they were, how they were connected to them, where they were from, what their position was, what was popular, what it would get him, what it would mean for him in his future or anything else. He had no problem going up to anyone in any kind of emotionally charged climate and saying, this is right, this is wrong. This is God's way. This is not. This is true. This is false. This is God-pleasing. This is sin. But I'll tell you what, not for one moment when I see Jesus going up to people, do you ever have a moment's doubt of his love for them? That when he would speak the truth, it was always motivated by love. My bet is some of you in this room today 
under the guise of love, are afraid of the truth. You're afraid of what it might mean to your relationship, how you might be branded in your workplace or society. You're afraid of the consequences, and not just to yourself, maybe even to that person. My bet is, on the other hand, there's a lot of you in this room today that in the name of truth have crucified love, that you're ready to take a stand and you're ready to fight, but not one ounce of it is coming from a spirit of love for someone else. I don't know where you are on that, but I encourage you to self-check. And when you find yourself in this world with the people that God loves and as an ambassador of his truth, to seek him diligently in both ways, See, guys, there are a lot of people struggling. The hands proved it earlier. And there's a lot of people struggling in this room. I hope just some of what we've talked about today has spoken to you and has helped you navigate through some of this. I want to encourage you, groups, keep wrestling, keep talking, keep praying and keep flushing out the implications of what some of this means. And know that God says there is right and there is wrong, and that in this context, yes, it is sin. But know that God loves you with such a deep and abiding love that it blows you away. We're going to commune today. And as you come forward, I would like you to take a certain posture in this today. Um, I'd like you to do a couple of things. A, soul search. For those of you who have been struggling with this, bring it to God. Make this time a time of prayer and bring it to God today. Let it all come out. Give it to him. For those of you who have been bearing it and denying it, admit it to him today and ask for forgiveness and hope and victory. For those of you who have embraced it whole hog because you got tired of just living in the struggle, ask God to give you the courage to fight. For those of you who aren't personally struggling, I want you to pray for the person you know, that they would see God's love, his hope, his restoration, his forgiveness, his acceptance. I want you to pray for yourself, that God gives you words, God teaches you what to say, but God gives you the heart that's inclined in the right way. Does that make sense? Would you do that today?